If you please look with me now at the confessional reading element in your order of worship. This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34. We're looking at the second part of this Lord's Day. We looked at the first part of this Lord's Day last week. We'll be specifically considering question and answers 94 and 95. And the reason why we don't have a scripture reading today is because our catechism reading uh, includes the scripture reading. So I also included in our confessional reading question 92, which is really the, the baseline for this extended section in which we uh, consider and apply the Ten Commandments to our lives. And so question 92, as it quotes the, the first commandment, will be, uh, again, our scripture reading uh, this morning. So as always, I will read the question. If you please respond by reciting the answer. So question 92 asks, what is God's law? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then question 94 asks, What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart, in short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. Question 95 asks, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. All right, well, boys and girls, uh, of those three main G's, which uh, G are we currently considering? Yes, Marcus. Gratitude. Uh, gratitude, yes. And gratitude is that last G. We've already looked at guilt, we've looked at grace, and now we're in, we're in gratitude. And quickly to review that grace section, what are the three elements of, of true faith? Isaiah? And what is the content of this knowledge, ascent, and trust? Uh, yes, Violet. Apostles' Creed. What benefit do we receive when we profess true faith? Annabelle? Christ's righteousness. Where does faith come from? Where does true faith come from? Isaiah? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit use to create faith in our hearts? Noel? Yes, preaching in the gospel, yes. The Spirit uses God's Word to create faith in our hearts. And what does the Spirit use to strengthen our faith? Annabelle? Sacraments, right? Very good. Now, what are the two keys of the kingdom? Two keys. Ezekiel. Yes, church discipline towards repentance and the preaching of the Word. Another way to think about this is this is the authority that Christ gave the church to affirm and disaffirm one's profession of faith. Again, Romans chapter 10, Paul says that we are to believe in our hearts and profess with our mouths. And that profession of faith is a profession that's meant to be done in the presence of many witnesses, evaluated by 
um, those whom Christ has appointed to be overseers in the church of Christ. Now, the, the gratitude section began with, with this consideration of motivations. Why should we do good works? If we've been redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ, why should we do good works? So what, is, what are some motivations that should motivate us to good works? Ezekiel? Gratitude, yes. Gratitude. And that question and answer gives a number of other motivations. You have uh, this, this desire to, to be assured of one's faith. Uh, there's the motivation to win our neighbors to Christ through our godly walk. There's the motivation to glorify and praise God through our life. And also, there's the motivation of recognizing Christ's goal for us in this life. His goal is not just to justify us, but to sanctify us, to make us a people zealous for good works. Um, two weeks ago, then, we looked at what, what true repentance or genuine repentance or sanctification looks like. And there's two main parts to this life of sanctification. Remember, uh, boys and girls, what are the two main parts of our life? Ezekiel? Right. Dying and rising. We are to put off the old man and make alive the new man. Those are the two, two main parts of the Christian life. And one of, the way, one of the parts of making alive the new man is that we are called to delight in, in God and walk according to his will in all manner of good works. And a good work is, the catechism defines a good work in, in three, three main ways. And so, is a good work, uh, where is a good work meant to proceed from? Like, what's, what, what's the disposition of our heart? Heart of faith, right? And are these good works to conform to the opinion and traditions of men or the law of God? The law of God. Are they to be done unto God's glory or our glory? Right? God's glory. So those are the three elements of a good work. Done from true faith, conformed to the law of God, unto his glory. <clears throat> Last time, then, we looked at the divisions uh, of the Ten Commandments. What are the two parts of the Ten Commandments? The first four comprise what? How to love God, exactly. And then the last six then are how to love our neighbor, exactly. Love God, love neighbor. Jesus summarizes these Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 22 uh, in this way. We're going to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And so now, in the subsequent weeks, we're going to be looking at each commandment, each of these Ten Commandments as one way in which we express our gratitude to God for our salvation. Now you'll notice that in question 92, we just read the first commandment. Question 92 lists all of the commandments, but we're just going to read question 92 in regard to what commandment we are, we are currently considering, and we'll do that in the subsequent weeks as well. But question 92 includes the prologue. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God, before he even gives Israel the Ten Commandments, reminds Israel that he is their Redeemer. God is the one who brought Israel out of, out of slavery in Egypt and then brought them through the wilderness to the Promised Land. <clears throat> now, Israel's time in Egypt was meant to be a picture for them of all of our bondage to sin. 
So Egypt was a picture of our, our relationship to sin before the, we experienced the regenerating power of the grace of God. The promised land then is a picture of heaven. So when Israel thought about the Exodus, they weren't just to think about how God delivered them from a tyrannical political ruler and gave them independence as a nation. That's not, that wasn't really the main point of the Exodus. The main point of the Exodus was to teach Israel that God is the one who delivers them from their bondage to sin and brings them to heaven. That's what the Exodus represented. And so God here is reminding Israel of his work as their redeemer, the one who re- rescues them from their sin and brings them to, to heaven. And in response then to God's work as Redeemer, Israel is meant to obey these ten words. And so again, these ten commandments are given to Israel in part to be the way and the means by which they express their gratitude to God for what he has done. As I said before, fear or, or the motivation of, of, of maintaining our salvation are not, not proper for the Christian. We do this in response to the redemption we've already definitively received from God in Christ. <clears throat> what I'd like us to do then this morning is we'll look at uh, three, three main things, or three main points. We'll look at what we, are to vo- uh, what we are to avoid. We are to look at what we are to do positively. And then we'll conclude by considering how the gospel motivates us to obey this first commandment. So when you look at at question answer 94, what are we to avoid in light of the first commandment? What are we to avoid? Idolatry, yes. That's the the first of of a list that the catechism gives us. And really that's the main main thing that we are to avoid. Really everything else could be subsumed under this uh, sin of idolatry. You'll see question 95 actually defines idolatry for us in a very helpful way. So according to our catechism, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So idolatry is when we trust, fear, love something as much as or more than God. God calls us to have an exclusive relationship with him. The, really the only analogous relationship to this among earthly relationships is marriage. We know that marriage only is going to work out if it's exclusive. In the same way, God doesn't want us to have a polygamous relationship with him. He wants our exclusive loyalty, our exclusive love, honor, fear, respect. But we know that we have, have hearts prone to idolatry. You know, John Calvin speaks about how our, our hearts are idol factories. We know this. We constantly are, are longing to make created things the creator. In fact, Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. He's speaking to, to those who, who are unregenerate, those who are still in Adam, those who are in their flesh, who have not tasted of that grace of God. And he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
Amen. So Paul is, again, speaking um, here about Gentiles, but he's, he's talking about how we have this natural fallen propensity to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. This is idolatry. Now, when we press into this idea of worship, it's not just you bow down before a statue. It's, worship is really denoting those things that we devote our time, our energy, our affections, our thought to. What are we giving ourselves to? And as Christians, we know that we, yes, worship the Creator, but we also have a propensity to continue to worship the creation. We continue to devote ourselves more to created things than we do the Creator. Uh, one author I was reading this week defines idolatry, I think in a helpful way, uh, and this, this author defines idolatry as taking good things, good things that we are called to enjoy, good things that are part of God's creation, but making these things ultimate or supreme. It's when we impute to these things a godlike status in our life. Uh, the same author says, uh, the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hope. Isn't that so true? The greater the good, the more likely um, it will be an idol in our life. It's very difficult for us to find that balance between being passionate about something, loving something or someone, and not letting that person or that thing become an idol. We're very good at, at apathy and idolatry, of disinterest and absolute love and devotion to, um, in a way that becomes sinful and idolatrous. What's hard is to be engaged, to be passionate, to have a heart, mind, soul, and strength involved in something in a way that doesn't turn that thing into an idol. Uh, it's been said that virtue is that which exists between two poles, right? You have the negative pole, the positive pole, and that's true here with the first commandment. We are called to be enjoy God's good, good creation. We're, we're not to be apathetic when it comes to our life in this world, uh, but as we enjoy God's good creation, we should not turn these things into idols. Right? Going down the middle of the road, that's, that's what's tough. That's what's difficult. So the greater the good, the more likely it is that we have to be beware. We have to be cautious that we're not turning that thing into an idol in which we serve. <clears throat> Same author continues to talk about how, you know, how can we begin to discern what, what things in our life may become idols. And I think there's some helpful questions that we can ask of ourselves. So for instance, where does your mind go in moments of solitude? It's an interesting question to consider. Those times during your day where you're maybe doing a mundane task or uh, your mind doesn't have to be explicitly engaged in anything, where does your mind go in those moments? Oftentimes, the things that we really, really love, we, we, we think about in those moments. Our mind just drifts there. We daydream about those things. Another question to ask yourself is, you know, how do we spend your money? How do you spend your time? How do you, how do you react to unanswered prayers or unfulfilled hopes? You can also look at your most extreme emotions. Oftentimes, your idols exist underneath those extreme emotions. So ask yourself, where in your life do you have outbursts of, of emotion? 
maybe negative emotions. And why are you acting that way? If you continue to pull at that, that thread, pull at that root, you might pull out an idol, or at least reveal an idol in your life, or it might reveal an idol in your life. So this is difficult. It's difficult uh, to fight against idolatry because the answer is not apathy. The answer is to enjoy God's good creation as his creation, as a means of enjoying and worshiping him. So as we consider this negative aspect of the first commandment, as I've said before, the law, even though it's functioning here as a law of gratitude, is also functioning as a mirror. And we are to look into the mirror of the first commandment and ask ourselves, how are we, well, what things are we looking to as, as idols in our life? And we are to be honest about what we see in this mirror of the first commandment. Well, notice that this question answer 94 also speaks positively to what we are to do. So we are to shun, we are to avoid all idolatry. Uh, but the catechism in question answer 94 speaks about a number of positive things that we are to do. What, what are some of those positive things that we are to pursue? Right. Rightly know the true God. So you'll see in question and answer 94, we are called to rightly know the only true God. As I've said before, the things that we idolize in our life, we give our mind to those things. I doubt there's anything in your life that you idolize that you know nothing about, that you haven't thought about at all. We naturally give our minds to those things that we cherish the most. And so that's why the catechism calls us to, that we are called to rightly know God. Part of our sanctification is growing in our knowledge of God. You know, Peter, in his epistle, he says, he acknowledges that there are many epistles of Paul that are difficult to understand, and the wicked in his day take Paul's epistles and twist them for their own advantage. But then he exhorts the, the Christians that he's writing to, uh, to grow, nevertheless, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of part of the Christian life. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, to, uh, we are to long to know more and more of who God is as our creator, as our sustainer, as our redeemer. What else are we called to do in question answer 94? Trust him right. Trust him alone. Now, you'll, we've already talked about trust as we've walked through this catechism. You'll remember the question and answer that asks, what is true faith? And we go through this every Sunday, knowledge, assent, and trust. That's the definition of true faith. And when it comes to this trust element, uh, we are called to embrace a hearty trust in God that he is the one that grants to us everlasting righteousness and salvation and this righteousness and salvation is freely given by him, and it's not a result of our works, but only Christ's merits, this is what we are to place our hearty trust in when it comes to justification. Well, when question answer 94 calls us to trust, it's, it's not trust in relation to justification. This is more of trust in relation to sanctification. I think that's an important distinction to make. We've already, we already talked about how trust functions in relation to justification, or to put it another way, we've already considered justifying faith or justifying trust. But now the catechism speaking to 
uh, trust in the realm of sanctification. Now, when you think about your life in sanctification, it's really all about trust, is it not? Every moment, every day, whether we're cognizant of it or not, we are trusting in something or someone. And the crossroads of the Christian life is whether or not we're going to trust in God or some other created thing. I think about anxiety. When you become stressed or, or worried, you're, you're tempted to trust in yourself. And that's why you may become anxious and stressed. Because you start to feel the weight of, of, of managing your life and the circumstances that seem out of control. And those moments, you can either continue to trust in yourself or trust God. Think about the times in which you grumble and complain. You can either trust God and that he's sovereign over your circumstances that have just disrupted your day, or you can trust in yourself or trust in a person or thing who has disrupted your day and you try to um, make things right. You try to retaliate. You try to... Uh, grumble and complain against these gods in which you are trusting. So all the Christian life is really a, a life of trust. Now, of course, we are called to be responsible. Trusting in God is not, is not a, an excuse to not be responsible. We're called to be responsible in, in this life. But the catechism here is speaking to our disposition that lies behind that responsibility that we're called to. Is our disposition a disposition of trusting God or trusting ourselves or some other created thing? And so here we are called to trust, trust God, uh, trust in who he is as our sovereign father who promises to um, providentially be over every circumstance of our life. And I love the two adverbs that question and answer 80, 94 include, that we are to trust God, we are to look to him humbly and patiently. Trusting God is an act of humility. Being able to acknowledge that God is in the control seat of our life and we're not, that takes humility. I mean, it's true. When we think we're in the control seat, we're, 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 uh, we're, we're deceived. But we're called to acknowledge that reality and live in the peace that comes from acknowledging that reality. But that takes humility. It takes humility to do that. It takes, hum uh, it takes patience to trust God. Think about the unanswered prayers that you currently are praying <laughs> Think about the unfulfilled hopes that you have currently. We all look towards the future and we see darkness. And we're called to patiently trust God even though we don't know how things are going to work out. It takes a lot of patience, a lot of humility to trust God. But positively, this is what we are called to do in light of this first commandment. Question 94 then continues and says that we are to love, fear, and honor him with our whole heart. Meaning... God is to capture our affections, our awe, our love, our respect more than anything, more than any person. And then in summary, the catechism says that we renounce all created things then go against God's will in any way. This means that we are to value, we are to enjoy, we are to treasure, esteem God more than, than any earthly relationship, a spouse, a family member, a friend, more than a favorite hobby, a favorite pastime, more than a vocation, more than, than security and status that money can give you, more than being well-liked by other people. All of the things that we look to in this life, things that may in, in, in themselves be okay and good, we are to esteem, we are to enjoy, we are to treasure, we are to um, love God more than these things. 
How are you doing in this regard? Can you honestly say that you go even one minute without breaking this first commandment? I can't. When we're honest about what we see in the mirror of the first commandment, we, we should be humbled. Humbled with the sinfulness of who we are. Even as those who are regenerate, who have the spirit, we continue to struggle in this way. Well, I'd like us to, to as we move towards the end of this, uh, this Lord's Day, I'd like us to consider how the gospel how the gospel motivates us as we seek to imperfectly obey this, this first commandment. Now, how did, Christ, how did Christ fulfill the first commandment? Can you think of any specific ways in which we see Christ fulfilling the first commandment? Your perfect obedience, right? In one sense, the first commandment encompasses all of the rest of the commandments because um, every commandment is all about fleeing idolatry and, and, and loving, fearing, obeying God. Correct. If you remember when Jesus was led out into the wilderness and tempted by, by Satan in a way that really recapitulated Adam's temptation in the garden and Israel's temptations in the wilderness, the evil one was tempting Jesus with things that were not in themselves sinful. It's not sinful to want to eat bread after you haven't eaten for 40 days. It's not sinful to demonstrate power and authority that you actually have. It's not sinful. It would not be sinful for Jesus just abstractly to turn a stone into bread. It would not be sinful, again, objectively, for Jesus to throw himself off a cliff and command his angels to save him in demonstration of his power and authority. However, what was sinful is that Satan was wanting Jesus to make these things, right? Food, power, and authority ultimate. He was pitting Jesus against his father. He was tempting Jesus to do things that were, not, that were not suitable for that time in his life. That time in Jesus' life, Jesus was supposed to live a life of humility, of humiliation. So Satan was tempting Jesus with good things, but wanting Jesus to make these good things ultimate in a way that rivaled and pitted him against his father. But Jesus resolutely obeyed that first commandment. He refused to go against the will of his father, he refused to bow down to Satan or other, any other created thing. And he, he is the only one who has never had any other gods before his father. And it's because Jesus perfectly obeyed this first commandment, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we can confess what we do in Heidelberg 60. That we are righteous in him. We can confess that God has granted to us Christ, uh, this perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ uh, in such a way that it's as if we have never sinned or had been a sinner and, and, and we receive all these benefits through faith. It's only because of Jesus' obedience that we can confess these glorious truths. And so this gospel message of what Jesus has done for us when he lived and died and rose again it's this gospel message that's meant to motivate our imperfect obedience to this first commandment. So for instance, when we are tempted to idolize uh, the opinions of other people, when we're tempted to long uh, for, for the love of other people, 
when we are tempted to want to please other people beyond anything else. We need to hear the gospel promise. We need to hear that God's love for us in Christ is infinitely greater than any love we can experience in an earthly relationship, and that love will never cease. It's only when we're resting, truly resting in that gospel promise that our idol of the opinions and love of other people will be devalued from an ultimate thing to a secondary thing. Think about uh, money. When those times when we're tempted to idolize the security and status that money can give in this life. We need to hear the gospel promise, particularly that promise that Paul gives the, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, we know the grace of God, that Christ who was rich became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Paul is telling these Corinthians Again, and it's for the purpose of motivating them to be generous, Paul's telling these Corinthians that they are wealthy, that God has transferred to their bank account the wealth of Christ. And this is the greatest security and status one could ever have, infinitely greater than earthly riches. In one sense, we are the ultimate trust fund babies. Think about, think about who we are as adopted children of God. We have been given an inheritance that we did not earn, that we did not buy, that only comes to us because of our inclusion in the family of God, because of the work of our elder brother. And this inheritance can never be taken away. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, being kept in heaven for us by the power of God. And so when we're tempted to idolize the security and status that money can give us in this life, we are to rest in this gospel promise, that we are wealthy in Christ, that we have a heavenly inheritance that cannot be taken away. And you can apply this logic to all of your struggles in this life. Whatever it is that you may be uh, tempted to idolize, we are called the rest in the gospel. And it's that gospel message that's the, our motivation to fight against idolatry in this life and to trust God. <clears throat> and so... Uh, and we see then that the gospel, as our motivation, gives us, promises us things that are infinitely greater than what our idols promise us. And that's what we're called to recognize in those moments of temptation. And so as we continue to go through these Ten Commandments, we're going to look at, 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 at the positive aspects of these commandments, the negative aspects of these commandments, but we're also going to look at how the gospel motivates our obedience because we can't look at these commandments apart from Christ. His fulfillment of these commandments on our behalf and how that propels us forward in our Christian life. So let us